with me again to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12 and verses 18 through 29. The apostle here reminds us, among other things, that we have received a kingdom that cannot be shaken. When the Lord came to Sinai, the earth shook. And he promises that yet again, when he comes again, not only the earth, but the heavens as well will shake. And yet, there is a kingdom that cannot be shaken, a kingdom which we have received, a kingdom whose king is God, a kingdom of which we have been made citizens and partakers then of all of the good things of that kingdom. The author to the Hebrews is basically preaching a sermon. And this sermon is really an extended exhortation to believers to persevere in faith in Christ. There was a temptation, particularly among the original recipients of this letter, under the pressure of the Jews that surrounded them, to return to the things of the Old Covenant. To return to those things that are described as earthly, temporary, and shadowy, to return to the temple, the priests, the sacrifices. And in the midst of this temptation, which is clear as a temptation to turn away from Christ in unbelief, the apostle exhorts God's people to hold fast to Christ. Precisely because Christ and the new covenant inaugurated in his blood is what all of those old things pointed to. All of those temporary forms of the old covenant pointed to a permanent reality in Christ. All of those shadowy forms of the old covenant pointed to the promised reality that would dawn in Jesus Christ. All of those earthly things pointed to that which was heavenly in Jesus Christ. Central to the author's appeal then to these beleaguered believers is this contrast between the old and the new. The temporary and the permanent, the earthly and 
the heavenly. And this contrast is found even here in our text this morning, Hebrews 12 and verses 18 through 29. Here we have, at some length, an additional reason given for the exhortation that we find at the very beginning of the chapter. Notice the word for at the beginning of verse 18. This takes us back ultimately to what we have in verses 1 and 2 of verse 12 or of chapter 12. Here is further encouragement to as it were lay aside every weight and the sin which does so easily beset us, and to run the race with patience that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Here is reason to press on in faith in Jesus Christ, turning away from the temptations to go back to the forms of the old covenant, to go back to the things which Christ has fulfilled and which are thus no more. We're encouraged to press on in faith in Christ to run just this race of the Christian life and Christian faith because the author tells us we have come Not to that imperfect, temporary, earthly kingdom. But instead to a perfect, eternal, heavenly kingdom. Established by God in Jesus Christ. The mediator of this new and better covenant. Whose blood is perfect. Whose blood is effectual. For our salvation. Press on. In Christ. Trusting. In Jesus Christ alone. Because you. Are citizens. Of his heavenly. Kingdom. Now for as much as. There are a great many details. In this passage that would pique our interest. And rightly commend our investigation and attention. Today we want to focus particularly on three things in our text concerning the kingdom of heaven. Especially as that kingdom is expressed in the way of contrast or expressed as it is juxtaposed with that earthly, imperfect, and shadowy form of the kingdom as it was in the days of the Old Covenant. Here the Apostle speaks of Jesus Christ, the mediator of a new covenant, and how it is that we have been brought to Him and brought then to His kingdom, to God's heavenly kingdom. A kingdom that cannot Be shaken. Three things then to notice about this heavenly kingdom. First of all, it is marked by the perfection of the divine presence. 
the perfection of the divine presence. There is a contrast at the very beginning of the section that we're looking at, a contrast between two different mountains. Mount Sinai on the one hand, and Mount Zion on the other. And the author tells us that we are to, again, run the race with patience, looking to Jesus, because you are not come unto Mount Sinai, but you have been brought unto Mount Zion. Here the author to the Hebrews describes a heavenly mountain. A mountain which is further described not only as Mount Zion, but as the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. And all of this language reminds us that what is paramount in the contrast here is not a physical location, at least with respect to Mount Zion. And even so with Mount Sinai, but what's significant here is a contrast or a juxtaposition of God's presence. Mountains are key features in the scriptures. Obviously, Mount Sinai and Mount Zion. We can also think of Mount, the Mount of Olives, Mount Calvary, even prior to that, the Mount of Transfiguration. And here in this context, Mount Sinai and Mount Zion stand in juxtaposition to underscore the perfection of God's presence at Zion or at this city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. God was present at Sinai at this mountain that could be touched in a in terms of or by way of certain signs. Again, this was a mountain that could be touched. It was tangible. It burned with fire unto blackness and darkness and tempest. It was shrouded by darkness covered in storm. Moreover, That which marked this mountain was not only what could be touched and seen, but what also could be heard. The sound of a trumpet, the sound of a voice. God speaking. These were all signs or effects of God's presence, and all of them are sensible. All of them are tangible. In short, this was an earthly mountain. And the signs that were indicative of God's presence there were, in a manner of speaking, earthly. God there enacting and ratifying his covenant attends this 
enactment and ratification with fire, blackness, darkness, tempest, a trumpet, and a voice. God's presence at this mountain was visible and audible. And it was visible and audible in such a way that the people feared. They didn't want any more word to be spoken to them, verse 19. They couldn't endure what was enjoined. They couldn't endure the law. They couldn't endure the present or the presence of the most just and most holy God. Even if a beast touched the mountain, it would be stoned. Sheer holiness and justice attended to that mountain in these visible and audible signs of the Lord's presence. The people even feared so much that they remember, send Moses. You go and represent us. You're God's mediator. And Moses was afraid. Even Moses shook, we might say. The people of God understood something of these signs as they were indicative of the presence of the just God. So they feared. Even that intermediary, that representative appointed for them, feared. But in this sense, though, everything that attended to that mountain was earthly, tangible, temporary. And the author tells us that we didn't come to that mountain. But we have come to a different mountain. Mount Zion, which is again explained further as the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. Not earthly, but heavenly. Not temporary, but permanent. Indeed, this is the perfect Reality to which that earthly and temporary, all of those signs pointed. And it's clear that this is a heavenly reality, a permanent reality, given that those who dwell there are marked by a certain Perfection. Either what we might call a relative perfection, relative to them being creatures, we'll see, explain that in just a minute, or an absolute perfection, namely the kind of perfection that can only be said of God. Notice. What he says, you've come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. To an innumerable hosts of angels. 
to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. Creatures, angels, and men. But not just any creatures, creatures marked by a kind of heavenly perfection. Angels, those who were confirmed in righteousness, and the church, the church of the firstborn, the church that belongs to the resurrected Christ, who are enrolled in heaven. Later in verse 23, the spirits of just men made perfect. All those who are justified and so marked by that perfection of justification. All this is relative, again, things which are said of creatures who are perfected by God, who himself is perfect. To God, the judge of all. Those who are there, as it were, indicate that this is no, these are no mere signs, but this is the reality. And the reality is heavenly. Indeed, heaven itself. And none of this is to be understood as mere metaphor. This is the real thing. This is the lasting thing. This is the permanent, the eternal. Sometimes, as I mentioned before reading the text, we think that because the things of the old covenant could be touched and seen and heard, that those are the real things. But those things were signs. They were temporary. And they pointed to that which was perfect, true, better, eternal, indeed heavenly. The church's reality in the new covenant is this. We are already enrolled in heaven. We are already citizens of God's heavenly kingdom. And what marks out this kingdom ultimately is that we have come or been brought to the heavenly dwelling place of God most high and have been enrolled among his heavenly people. By faith in Jesus Christ, we have come to receive the blessings of heaven even being brought to heaven's God. The true God. God who is the judge of all men. Here at the very center of what the apostle is saying is that we have been brought in virtue of Christ, in virtue of his death and resurrection, we are enrolled in heaven and that means that we dwell in the presence of God. We have been brought to Him. We do not come 
to a mountain that is marked by signs, temporary signs of God's presence, but we've come to the mountain where God dwells with his people. All of the perfection or imperfection of the old covenant then has passed away. And we have been brought to, made recipients of that perfection that marks the new covenant. And we're reminded then that even while earth shook at God's presence at Sinai for a moment... And earth shall shake again on the last day, even heaven itself when Christ comes again. There is a kingdom that we have received that cannot be shaken. And it's a kingdom that cannot be shaken, not only because it is established in Christ's blood, but because it is marked by God's permanent presence with his people. It is marked by our permanent presence With the true, the living, indeed the triune God. We have been enrolled in heaven in such a way that we are made God's people in Jesus Christ. And so brought to him. We then are even those just men who are made perfect. Even whilst we await that final shaking of earth and heaven through which we shall pass unshaken. We are God's kingdom and God, or we dwell with God under his rule and reign. The kingdom is marked by perfection of God's presence. The heavenly kingdom is secondly marked by the perfection of the mediator of the kingdom. It is marked by the perfection of the Savior, Jesus Christ. Just as the contrast between Sinai and Zion is a contrast between what is on the one hand earthly, that is temporary, tangible, imperfect, shadowy. And on the other hand, what's heavenly, that that is what's permanent, eternal, perfect, real we might say. So also we have this contrast between Moses and Christ as respective mediators Of the old and the new. Moses. Moses who earlier in the letter is called. Referred to as the mediator of the old covenant. Is said to fear. The appearance. Fear. What he saw. And he gives voice to this fear. He quakes, he says. And this fear and trembling 
attest to the way in which God was present there in those signs. In his justice. But we, says the apostle, have come to this Mount Zion, this city of the living God, this heavenly Jerusalem. And in doing so, have come to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, whose blood speaks better things than Abel. And he doesn't expand upon this here because when he speaks of Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, to the blood of sprinkling that speaketh better than that of Abel, he's really summarizing everything he said at great length, at least beginning in chapter 4 and verse 14, down through chapter 10 and verse 18, if not more. And he's reminding us in this brief turn of phrase that Jesus Christ is the one through whom all of the perfection of this heavenly kingdom is merited for us. We are brought to this mountain, brought to this city, brought to this heavenly Jerusalem, brought into the company of the innumerable hosts of angels. We ourselves are brought to the general assembly in the church of the firstborn, enrolled in heaven ourselves. We're brought to God, the judge of all. Because we have been brought to Jesus. He is the one in whom all of this is freely and fully bestowed upon us. The author to the Hebrews has at great length told us that this Jesus is true God and true man. One Christ. And so fittingly, properly, even in his person, the only one who could be the mediator between God and men, the only one who could be the mediator between God the judge of all and sinful men, He's told us that he's the prophet of heaven, the king of heaven, and indeed the priest of heaven. The mediator of this new covenant. Whose blood, having been sprinkled upon the altar, whose blood and whose the blood of sprinkling that cleanses the conscience from dead works. That is, blood that truly saves, blood that really, unlike the blood of the beasts, truly saves from sin. This is the one to whom we have been brought and through whom we come to heaven and the God of heaven. He is the reason we receive the blessings of heaven, are enrolled as citizens of heaven. He is the one who as a man, for man, brings us to God. 
by a blood, by a sacrifice, the offering of himself that truly satisfies the demands of divine justice. Moses and the people feared because there was no sacrifice for them. Even the beasts that they would lay upon the altar would be consumed by divine justice if they dared to touch the mountain which shadowed forth the perfection of God in His justice and holiness. Abel's blood is lesser than the blood of Jesus because Abel's blood cried out for justice but received it not. Christ's blood calls out for justice and that justice falls upon him in such a way that he establishes the new covenant and affects the blessings of the new covenant for those who deserve God's justice. You and I deserve to be consumed by the fire that is God himself. And yet Jesus brings us to God, the judge of all men, safely. And he alone, not Moses, not the law, but Jesus, the mediator. Jesus, by his blood, satisfies divine justice for you and for me. And so we need not ever turn back to those old things. They're ineffectual. They're powerless. They never could save and they can't save. They always pointed to the one who does save, who does keep the law, who does sacrifice himself in the place of his people. Who gives himself that better offering, that final perfect offering. Because of the perfection of Christ, because of the perfection of Christ as the mediator, indeed because he is the mediator of this heavenly kingdom, we have received a kingdom that cannot be shaken. This is not a matter of our just reward, but it is a matter of grace. We've received this kingdom, we've been brought to God. The King, through Jesus Christ. And so the warnings that we have here in this context are designed not to cause us to tremble at the word or even tremble at the law, but to look To Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Who for the joy that was set before him, the joy of bringing sinners to God, the joy of bringing many sons to glory, endured the cross, despising the shame, and hath sat down at the right hand of God.
Yes, we must heed that voice, that word of God, warning us from heaven not to turn back, not to turn away from Christ. But he warns us ultimately to the end that we might persevere in faith in Christ. Look, you've received a kingdom through Jesus Christ. And so look to him. The perfection of God's presence. The perfection of the mediator. But finally, the perfection of our service as citizens of this kingdom. Because we have been brought to God, brought to his heavenly presence, and are made his heavenly people through Christ, we are called to a particular way of life. A life which takes the form of service A life which is the offering up of true worship to God. Verse 28, wherefore, because of all of this that I've just said, receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, in view of your incorporation into the kingdom of heaven, because you are citizens of heaven through Jesus Christ, and you will be even upon the shaking of the heavens and the earth when Christ comes again. Because of that, let us have grace. Let us have Gratitude, whereby we may offer service well pleasing to God with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. We have been enrolled in heaven in virtue of Jesus Christ, and so. Our way of life is to be heavenly. And a heavenly way of life knows grace, lives out of grace, and is so marked by gratitude. It knows something of the kingdom that we've received. An unshakable kingdom. One that will never, ever, ever, ever be destroyed. One that is permanent and eternal because the God whose presence marks that kingdom is eternal and the Christ who has secured that kingdom for us, his sacrifice is effectual. 
It knows that grace and it lives out of that grace in the way of gratitude. Let us have grace. Let us have thanksgiving corresponding to the grace of heaven that we've received. Let us live that life of heaven in the way of gratefulness to the God of heaven and to the Christ who has brought us to heaven. Indeed, the Christ who has won heaven and given us heaven. And this life of grace takes a particular shape and form of offering service well-pleasing to God with reverence and awe. Worship in the presence of God, one has said, is the essence of the Christian religion. It's the essence of Christian piety. Indeed, this is why we have been brought to Mount Zion. This is why we have been brought to the city of the living God, to the heavenly Jerusalem. Indeed, even why we are brought into the presence of all of the angels confirmed in righteousness and to every believer Everyone who is enrolled as a citizen of heaven. This is why we've been brought to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, through his blood. We have been saved by God's grace for worship. And this worship is the ultimate expression of our gratitude for God's grace. Our participation in the reality of heaven through Jesus Christ, our great high priest, calls forth from us believing gratitude. And the chief and fullest expression of that gratitude is this offering up of worship that is well-pleasing to God with reverence and awe. Worshiping God according to his word with a disposition that is appropriate to his heavenly presence. That is, it is appropriate to our heavenly citizenship and our presence with him in heaven. That is, reverence and awe. Why do we assemble together for worship on the Lord's Day? Why do we worship God according to his word? In a manner pleasing to him. Why do we worship God the judge of all with reverence and awe? Precisely because we've not come to a mountain that burns with fire. But to the God who is a consuming fire. We've not been brought to signs but to the reality. We've been brought to God himself. Heavenly worship is fitting for heavenly citizens, for those who dwell in the presence of just this God. And my friends, we need not fear, as did Israel, as did Moses. But we do need to approach with reverence and awe. Precisely because... Christ has sprinkled clean the altar and cleansed our conscience from dead works. We may approach the throne with grace then, with gratitude, 
Because God has brought us to Himself. Because God has made us His own heavenly people. Because God has incorporated us into His heavenly kingdom through Jesus Christ our mediator. We come, we've been brought to God Himself through Jesus Christ. And as those who have been brought to God, the most fitting service is thankful worship of just this God. Reverent worship of just this God. Awe-filled worship with just this God. For the God who is and ever remains a consuming fire. For the God who is a God of justice. Notice, he's not said God changes from justice to mercy. That God changes from holiness to grace. No, the God who presented himself as it were to Israel and to Moses. In signs which made them afraid. Yet remains perfectly just. But his justice has been satisfied for those who are in Jesus Christ. For all who come to him through Jesus Christ, there is the perfection of divine justice satisfied by a perfect offering, Jesus Christ himself. And so come to Jesus. Come to Jesus And even now as we come to the table, come to Jesus. Partake of Jesus. And with a proper devotion in your heart, thankfulness to God. To the God of all justice. To the God who is the judge of all. Come to Him through Jesus Christ. With thanksgiving. The debt has been paid. You are cleansed. You may come. You may come and do what is well pleasing to our God. With reverence and awe. You may even come. In your weak faith. Because even weak faith gets the same Christ. The Christ that has brought you to God's heavenly kingdom. The Christ. Who is the mediator. Of a new covenant. Whose blood. Speaks. Justice. Satisfied.